Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and the 100,000th download special. Yes, you heard me right, 100,000 downloads. What's a 100,000 download special? Well, essentially, I don't even know if I'll get to 200k, so we're going to party like it's 1799, probably, to celebrate the fact that we got this far, because frankly, that's staggering in itself. And we've got a belter for you. We've always got a belter, but this is a particular belter and it's continuing that vein of writing a wrong. We have previously talked about how women don't get enough coverage when it comes to the Napoleonic era. That's something that we've vaguely addressed in a few previous episodes, but we're gonna have another little go at it today because we are debating the most significant woman of the Napoleonic era. Joining me to discuss are Beatrice de Graaf, Professor of International Relations, and Diplomatic History at the University of Utrecht. Sam Jolly, the Assistant Curator at the Royal Engineers Museum, Gillingham, Kent. Vanya Bellinger, who is a lecturer for the United States Air Force and is an expert on the writings and letters of Carl von Clausewitz and his wife, Marie. And last but by no means least, Christine Hughes-Patrone, who you remember I waxed lyrical about when it came to her book, Waterloo Witnesses, looking at the civilian perspective on the Waterloo campaign when it came out last year. Welcome, all of you. Really looking forward to this one. How are we all doing? Christine, you've just had hurricanes, which alarmed me when you told me about this earlier. We didn't have hurricanes. We had Sorry, tornadoes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Two different but significant weather events in southwest Florida, yes. Look, heavy winds are involved, and it's been a long day, so that's yeah. my excuse. <laughs> Um, but we should say all is well, and you're not kind of coming to us from all a... is well, and I have all kinds of connections, telephone and internet, so we're good to go. Brilliant. That's that's a relief to hear. Living what in the United States is the equivalent of next door to you is Vanya, because you're in Alabama, aren't you? I'm in Alabama. Yes, I'm in Montgomery, Alabama. 
and how are things? Uh, things are really good. Um, kind of yesterday we had some snow. I know like um, I was born in Bulgaria, so for my Bulgarian standard, that was not real snow. But like for Alabama, that's a big thing. We had like a centimeter of snow or two centimeters and everybody was super excited about it. Um, tons of pictures. And I have to say, living in the South, I do miss the snow. So it was kind of nice change of venue. But today, no more snow. Yeah, see, in the UK, you get a centimetre of snow and everybody runs around screaming, pretending that the world has ended. Sam, guessing that there was no snow up in Medway over the weekend? No snow in Medway, just lots and lots of mist, which depending on which part of Medway you're in, that's the best way to view it. This is, this is true. There are many jokes that we could make about Medway. Very few of them are, are polite or kind, which isn't a reflection on Sam, but it is a reflection <laughs> of some of the environs of the region right let's let's get on with it shall we um usual style we'll do in theory five minutes of of pitches but the stop clock might as well just fly out the window because this will be interesting and i'm not really fussed how long the pitches take i'm just looking forward to hearing it after that we'll open it up to questions and then the final say will be given to people on twitter who i have to say have restored my faith in the um kind of democratic process that can be a Twitter poll because the outcome of the greatest film of the Napoleonic era was Master and Commander, as pitched by me. So I am rather smug about this and I shall forever say in the kind of spirit of Star Wars, which we were ironically talking about a few moments ago before we started recording, um, as Palpatine says, I love democracy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, to business and we will start with Sam. Okay so today I'm, I'm going to be talking about the uh, the femme soldat Teresa Figa, a woman who served 22 years in the French army, openly female, was shot twice, had at least four horses shot from under her, a prisoner of war three times and uh, she insulted Napoleon to his face. So let me spin you her narrative. Orphaned at nine, Teresa is raised by her single uncle, a military officer, and following the revolution, her uncle fought for the royalists. Not wanting to leave the 18-year-old Teresa alone in Dijon, he sticks her in a uniform and takes her along with him. Now, normally I would assume someone's reticence to leave a young lady behind is to protect the girl's honour, but the more you hear about Teresa, the more you'll probably agree with me that it was more to protect the people of Dijon from her. So captured by the revolutionaries, um, Teresa goes down cricking, uh, kicking and screaming. She's calling the revolutionaries cowards for killing the king, um, punching and screaming and kicking. And the commander loves her attitude so much that he gives her the choice. The guillotine as a royalist or fight for the revolutionaries. By this point, Teresa has realized she just loves being a soldier. And does it really matter who she's fighting for as long as she gets to ride a horse and slash things with a saber? Uh, so Teresa finds herself at Toulon, fighting for the revolutionaries, uh, delivering dispatches, and falling out with a young Napoleon because she thinks he's an absolute ass. She dances with women at balls as if she's one of the men, and she even has to prove her gender at one point to an angry father demanding that she marry a woman she supposedly got pregnant. She had to go off in a side room with the, with the girl's mum and be like, whoop, I have boobs. Up until this point in 1793, there'd been a number of women fighting for revolutionary France, either openly or disguised as men. But the, uh, the convention ordered them all home in 1793. But Theresa's commanding officer said no. And he personally filed a petition to keep her officially in the army. 
citing not only her bravery at Toulon, but an incident in the Pyrenees where she dragged a French general to safety and then ridden straight back into the battle. Uh, in another incident um, that she, by her own admission in her memoirs, say haunted her dreams for at least a year, she trampled an enemy to death with her horse in a rage. Eventually she found a man that she quite liked and she did try and settle down, but she got bored and she re-enlisted. Instead of registering under her married name, uh, she used her old nickname the Dragoon Regiment had given her, Madame Saint-Gene, because she'd built up this reputation and this was her name and no man's name was going to take away the fact that she'd had this reputation in, uh, earlier in the conflict and she was going to play on that. Fighting against the Austrians, she, captured, she was captured for the second time in her career and weirdly narrowly avoided being burnt as a witch because she was a female soldier. They'd heard there was a female soldier in the prisoners of war and so they wanted to burn her as a witch and the soldiers heard about this so they took her, a, one of the continuers was also a prisoner with them and they, they took her scarf um, and they borrowed one of her skirts and then um, Teresa dressed up as if she was one of the regimental wives and, and, and didn't get burnt. Um, at the end of 1800, Teresa retired from the army to recover from wounds from this previous campaign. And she was given an NCO's pension and she wasn't an NCO. She was, she was just a normal dragoon at this point. But she got bored again. Uh, retirement was just not for her. And a year later, she re-enlisted. But unfortunately for her, she was placed in what was seen as meant to be a great position for her because she was such a unique woman. Uh, she was placed as a uniformed companion to Josephine. And she, yeah, you guessed it, got bored. So she resigns within 10 days of that and actually goes off with Augereau's wife because Augereau's wife loved riding and that was absolutely Teresa's thing. Her memoirs then claim that she fought at Ulm, Austerlitz and Jena, but there's, there's some discrepancy between her claims and some documentation that historians found putting her in Paris. So we'll leave that to the side for now. Um, but she served during the Peninsula War. Uh, she served alongside her second husband at Burgos and was captured by the Spanish. And they really wanted to kill her because the Spanish didn't, um, they didn't distinguish between men and women fighting for the French because they weren't distinguishing between men and women in their own partisan fighters. But a local priest convinced them to spare her because she'd been so nice to the local villagers in her time around there. So they handed her to the British and the British made her wear a dress because the British hate female soldiers. Uh, but instead of sending her to a prison hulk like they would have with a, a normal soldier, so they, they did at least give her one um, kind of bonus for, for being, a, they acknowledged she was a soldier, um, but they hated the fact she was a woman, but they did send her to house arrest near Portsmouth where she raised rabbits until evacuated in 1814. She hated the food, but did concede that uh, British beer wasn't too bad actually. During the 100 days after repatriation, um, Teresa immediately tried to re-enlist again, but she didn't get to go to Waterloo. She only fought in the final skirmishes around Paris. And her time as a soldier came to a final end with the fall of Napoleon. She then married a third time, and because she was such a unique and wonderful woman herself, she can clearly recognize a kindred spirit and ran a restaurant with the first female parachutist. Caesar figure is not significant in the same way as some of the political powerhouses that I think that the other ladies here tonight are going to bring. She never influenced a foreign policy, she never changed. Uh, any kind of gender politics. She never raised a great leader or negotiated a peace treaty. But, and, and Teresa is a soldier, she's a, a significant uh, or insignificant to the wars as the Dragoon next to her. But she defied convention. She said no to societal expectations and she regularly stuck two fingers up to the patriarchy 
her presence in the army, it, by no means did it lead to any acceptance of female soldiers or any change to women's rights. She didn't seek to do so. In a time where female soldiers were sent home and actively discouraged, Theresa not only served for many years, but was able to re-enlist multiple times because she knew she should be a soldier and she didn't let anything stand in her way. It wasn't just because her commanders around her and her soldiers around her recognised she could be stronger. She herself recognised it and refused to let anyone say no to her. She was in the thick of the battles whenever she was able to, and she was recommended for a legion to honour, but unfortunately she didn't, she didn't receive it. She marries three times, but omits the first two from her memoirs because it's not their story. Her life isn't defined by the men she marries. They're, they are, to her, inconsequential to her narrative. At one point, she, uh, in a really great story that I love, at one point she agreed to marry a warrant officer, went to the wedding proudly in her full uniform, but walked out in a fury when the, uh, the priest joked which one was the bride and which one was the groom. And the groom was a bit of an ass and he laughed, so she never married him and ran away. You may want to disqualify me for not bringing a clear-cut significant woman to the debate, and I would concede that, but I wasn't here to win a debate. I was here to share the story of Teresa Figa because it's such an outstanding story for anyone trying to live their lives in the way they want to when the world is telling them they shouldn't. For anyone who wants to be defined by their actions and not by society's expectations. And as such, Teresa is a hugely significant role model to, to anyone in, in modern audiences. Although I, I wouldn't recommend trampling men's horses when they make you angry, that's not much of a role model. Teresa may not be the most significant woman to the period, but she may well be the most badass. And there's a road named after in Dijon, so at least the people of her home city agree with me. Wow, that is how we do things on the Napoleonicist. Thank you for that, Sam. Um, you were winning me over within the first sentence when you said that she insulted Napoleon to his face. That went down very well with me given my stance on Napoleon. She does seem ever so slightly psychotic um, in places, you know, perhaps that's just the way that you spun the narrative, but this, this whole thing of, I just want to slash at people with a sabre. Um, I can understand that desire. Uh, sometimes I, I feel much the same, usually about technology rather than human beings, but that, that's another story entirely. You got a lot of approving nods during the course of that. I'm not gonna disqualify this on any grounds whatsoever. I hear what you say, maybe not. This is something for debate, maybe not as um, wide reaching in terms of her impact as some of the others that we may discuss tonight. But that whole thing about doing her own thing actually says a lot about the nature of this woman and the way in which she can be held up as an example of that kind of casualized misogyny that people love to put out there of, oh, you didn't get women in the army back then. That's just historically inaccurate. Things that I have come across um, quite recently and been quite cross about um, when I've seen them put forwards. I want to ask a couple of things. Firstly, about kind of her and the agency that she had, because she's clearly a woman who knows her own mind and knows how to make a patriarchal society and a particularly patriarchal entity in the form of the French army almost kind of whistle to her tune and work in the way that she wants it to work and get them to embrace her for what she is, a female soldier. So I guess my question is, you know, how, first of all, does she go about doing that on an interpersonal level? How is she able to get those connections to work so that some colonel doesn't turn around and go, you know what, you're going home and there's nothing more said about this. And then the second question is, 
about sort of the wider impact of her story. To what extent does this get kind of publicized within France and become a source of kind of inspiration and pride amongst certain groups? So I think as anyone, as anyone who hears her story probably won't be surprised to hear, she sounds very much like she's earning the respect of those around her by being the baddest bitch that she thinks she can be. Uh, and while she, and technically she enlists the first time because she's following her uncle. She's enlisting for a man, for a relative, to have a place to go, have food, um, to be looked after, to be his ward. But I'm not, I'm not sure 100% the truth in this earlier story, but I have heard that she was always a bit of a bad bitch because when she was, um, when she was like 13, 12 or 13, her uncle actually was supposedly got in a duel with someone and as they were preparing to fight, his teenage niece, Theresa, apparently rode up to the battle, they rode up to the duel with a, with, a, with a sword and threatened to cut the man down herself. And then they found it so funny that they decided to put their differences aside. I don't know the truth in this story. I, I found it uh, somewhere in the deepest, darkest pictures of the bits of the French internet. But um, she definitely seems to be winning people over through her, her skill in battle. And um, I think also because she is this quaint, strange, creature within the army so when she pulls out with Napoleon at Toulon uh, he basically thinks that she isn't delivering letters fast enough for him he's only a lieutenant and um or whatever it was at that point and she uh, she's she's not delivering them fast enough and so he throws her into detention and then that night at dinner the uh the commanding officer was like where's where's Teresa I enjoy having her for dinner where is she forget her out the jail I'm not having that and so she comes to dinner and sits there next to the, the commander and Napoleon and then calls him names and then the commander finds out absolutely hilarious. So she is definitely this kind of, it's probably too strong a word. She's um, an abnormality. She's something quaint. She's something quite funny and unique, but she's also a good fighter and she's also very tenacious. So she's earning her place there. And, and as I said, that can be seen in the fact that they, uh, they really wanted her to, to stay in the army the first time when all these women were getting sent home and that wasn't that wasn't common of the of the 18 known women in the um in the army at the time I, I can't remember how many sent home but it's it's most of them it's not it's not common for them to be, be kept like that and as for general reception uh, I think she is in in France she's definitely more of much more of a well-known figure than in, in the English-speaking um, histories she's she's got um as I said a road in Dijon uh, she published her memoirs in in 1842 they were then republished quite popularly in the 1890s because her her nickname, uh, Madame Madame Saint Jean, was borrowed for a play, and it was borrowed for a play about a female in the Napoleonic period, but not her. So when they stole the name, they knew it was her, uh, but they didn't then write it about her. But then lots of comparisons were drawn between the two, and so her her fame kind of rose rose a lot. And uh, a few years ago, there was I mentioned it in my um, uh, Wise Holes and Amazon episode of this podcast. There was a, a lovely graphic novel, a uh, slightly warped uh, and fictionalised graphic novel. So there's definitely a huge audience, I think, just not in England. because, And I think that's usually because a British army hated female soldiers. So therefore, in the English speaking, there's no, there's no mention of female soldiers because it's not, it's not something that was supposedly done, but it very much is. I'm going to throw it straight open to the others. I like this one. Um, Vanya, any thoughts on this? Um, I have known that there were in the French army, there were women, but like, it was kind of interesting to see this micro history, you know, one person and all the um, adventures and things that she 
she's done. Um, and my question is, um, how, how did she see herself and her story? Did she see herself as an exception? Or wanted, did she wanted to have more women doing the same things? You know, you mentioned Chiode memoir. How did she evaluate her own story after that? I, I think that she viewed herself very much as an exception. Um, but the reason I have to say very clearly, I think is because it's in French. Um, there isn't a English translation. I do not speak French. So when I was reading it, it was very much a haphazard um, pigeon French understanding, picking out paragraphs I wanted to read, getting someone to translate it for me. So I don't, I haven't read the memoir fully in her voice, but she definitely, definitely seemed to think of herself as this unique woman because she's she's riding around the country stabbing the enemy and everyone around her is a man. Um, and her her um her commanding officer at one point asks her to be his mistress. And she laughs in his face and says, no, I'm a soldier. I'm not, I'm not a mistress. So she definitely views herself as this, this unique, I'm coming back to her badass, her use this unique badass soldier. I mean, very modern woman, like very modern um, yeah. Yeah, approach to things and thinking that that's why it kind of strikes me. It's very interesting. Yeah. It is, it definitely is. It's very much not of the time at all, but then, is that just because there were more women like her and their stories just didn't get told because they weren't seen as good? Yeah. That, and yeah, how, how irritating is it that it's not been translated into English? Um, if there's anybody out there with a half decent proficiency in French, um, I know people at Hellion, I can have a conversation and see whether or not they would publish it. Um, because if I had a publishing house, that would be top of my list right now to get somebody to do that, because it sounds an utterly incredible account, and it's one that's well worth it. Um, Christine, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I'm trying to think how, how she did all this logistically, being the, the only woman, you know, where did she sleep, things like that. Mm. Um, and, and also... Um, you know, there, there are rumors that there were female soldiers in the peninsula and at Waterloo. So it's kind of making me think, you know, it's, it's a lot more probable that those rumors could have been true based on the fact that it was so open, apparently, in the French army. Not all of them well, are at open. Least Some for, of them, her, for her. Yeah. Some of the women had to dress up as men. There are a lot of cases of women dressing up as men. Uh, and then them finding out their women were either when they die or when they get captured. So it's not, it's right. It's that's, it makes it more unique that she was openly a woman and that after she was, well, she was always openly a woman, but that she was then accepted. Whereas normally they were, once they were openly a woman, it was a bit like, oh, shall we, okay, maybe you're quite a good fighter. But I completely agree with the, the logistical part. I've, uh, I have always, always wondered how they dealt with, with that kind of thing because. With, um, with her commanding officer asking her to be his mistress. So that, surely there's the risk of that just left, right and center. Maybe that's yes. why she got married three times. <laughs> Could yeah. have been. But also logistically, and we did touch on this in your um, episode on this uh, that we did a while back. Logistically, if you're hiding your gender, that is very difficult to do. Um, just biologically and in terms of you know, the, the, the problems of needing to relieve yourself, 
washing, you know, these things that are often done very publicly, that, you know, the, the evidence is, is there. Um, it's, it's a huge question. And this is something that we touched on, isn't it? You know, to what extent was it actually a known thing? People just went, you fight and you fight well, and that's all I really care about. You know, you're going to do your job. I'll trust you to do your job. Let's just move on. Exactly, exactly. I, as I said in the the other episode, I anyone any of the ones that were supposedly disguised as men, I don't under, I don't think that their disguises lasted as long as officials will claim they did, because there is there is zero chances of you successfully being able to hide that many menstrual cycles, that many toilet trips. It's just not possible. I think um, usually women, you know, the cross-dressing and so on, they got discovered um, when they got wounded or, you know, like when the medical service comes. That's Leonora Prochasko, who's like the famous on, on Russian side. Um, but it was kind of sort of known that, or that's my reading, that it was kind of a little bit known because it was, um, she was with some relative there and but it was like to the larger group of men that was unknown and definitely not to the commander. And the way, you know, she was discovered is because she's wounded. She was, uh, she was badly wounded. She did not survive, you know, and, but after that she becomes this larger than life, you know, the media publicizes it and so on. And um, um, this is how we all know that there were much more women. But in this case, that's interesting because it's open, you know, it's in the open. Yeah, and even then with, with um, Eleanor Petraska, I've, I've always wondered if, it, if it's more the case if they pretended they didn't know because it makes for a good story at the end when she's like, ah, oh, they're lieutenant, I'm a woman, and then she dies. Yeah. That's more dramatic than, oh, yeah, we knew she was a woman. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. I mean, um, um, the unit she fought, like, I think their papers are still kind of intact. But like no one has so much papers. I think somebody has to go and look um, with Prochaska one more time. Like that would be my reading. There you go. If somebody wants to go and dig into that. Um, we have all kinds of ideas, you know, for people to write, uh, like hear dissertations, guys. We have all these ideas. Absolutely. Well, you know, if there's a, a PhD student or an MA student out there listening, hey, here are some ideas, start throwing them at your supervisors and see if you can, you can get a project out of them because there's so much that we don't understand and there you go, there's one of them. Um, and we're what, 15 minutes into the, the episode? So great start to this. Thank you for that, Sam. We're going to go straight on to another belter. Vanya, who are you championing? I am championing uh, Queen Louise of, uh, of Prussia. Queen uh, or Louise in German. Um, Queen Louise uh, played an important role in Russian and European politics in the Napoleonic era. Uh, her attempts to negotiate with the French emperor in 1807 and achieve more favorable conditions for Prussia. They have been the subject of so much legend and speculations. Uh, Louis' role in strengthening uh, Frederick Wilhelm III's backbone for reforms was significant. The Reform Party in Prussia was called the Queen's Party. 
but I will also argue that after her untimely death in 1810, um, the Prussian monarchy weaponized Louise, uh, Louise's memory and um, her popularity to mobilize Prussia's population for war against Napoleon in 1813 and 1815. This is what makes Queen Louise of Prussia, in my opinion, one of the most important women in the Napoleonic era. Now to give you a little bit more uh, information about um, Queen Louise, who is she? She was born in um, 1776 uh, as the Duchess, as Duchess um, Louise of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, that's a small principality up north in Germany. She was niece of Queen Charlotte of Great Britain, uh, that's the wife of George III. Um, despite the big name, uh, Louise, uh, Louise's father was the second son, so she was actually not from the ruling branch at that moment. Her mother died when she was very young, then her stepmother died. So um, as a young girl, she was sent to live with her grandmother in Darmstadt, where she was raised in a rather unconventional way for the era, free, uh, willing, roaming around, but also she grew up in a company of educated and refined women. Louise herself was not very educated. Um, she just never had much discipline about, you know, to study, but she was curious and she was, um, she was clever. She was also a very beautiful woman. That's what we see on all the paintings, that she's like um, a very attractive woman. So it, it is hardly a surprise that when the Prussian crown prince Friedrich Wilhelm saw her in uh, 1793, he was smitten. Now, the Prussian court was a rigid place. Friedrich Wilhelm and his father did not go get along. Um, and the uh, crown prince was this shy, awkward man, often lacking confidence. So Louise, on the other hand, um, she was so charming, elegant, also a warm, warm person, really kind person. And she had this quiet confidence about herself. So when uh, the young Friedrich Wilhelm uh, saw her, he felt uh, head, uh, head over heels in love. Um, the union with the Northern German Principality of Mecklenburg-Strelitz was also in Prussia's interest. Meanwhile, the older uncle has died. So Louise, Louise's father was actually the, the prince and the marriage was quickly arranged um, and happened the same year. Coming to Berlin, Louise was an instant sensation. She became popular with large group, groups of the Prussian population, and she had this ability to connect with people, quite contrary um, to the rest of the Hohenzollern dynasty. That's the dynasty ruling Prussia. Um, they were like awkward, rigid people. Uh, and um, Louise, um, to, to make it more understandable to, um, to our listeners, to modern listeners, she was kind of Diana-like figure, you know, Diana Princess of, of Wales, you know, the same way connecting with people, the same way fascinating people, and of course, very, uh, very beautiful woman. In 1797, um, Friedrich Wilhelm III ascended to the throne and by then Louise um, had delivered the heir and the spare. 
she had altogether 10 pregnancies with seven healthy children. So she also excelled on that front. And the young royal couple um, toured um, the country. So at, at that period, she also emerged as equally popular as her consort. And uh, Louise's curiosity and cleverness, um, and also her husband's reliance on, uh, on her advice, because he sees her as his best friend, made her the channel many sought when they wanted to reach uh, Frederick Willem. Famously, on the eve of the disaster of 1806, that's uh, Jena Auerstadt, this huge disaster for Prussia, <laughs> Baron Stein the great Prussian reformer, he um, passed his reform proposal to Louise. Um, unfortunately, none of this, uh, these ideas um, were applied. Louise was also in the Prussian camp uh, with Friedrich Wilhelm on the eve of Vienna Auerstadt. And this is where the uh, French propaganda vilified her as a Amazon and warmonger. And also, you know, the queen um, vilified as if she wore a uniform and was ready to fight. But when Napoleon showed up, she ran from the battlefield. That's how the Prussian, uh, sorry, this is how the French propaganda painted it. Um, this is also the time when Louise's image changed. She was no longer a beautiful queen, but a personification of Prussia's destiny. Um, uh, we know that Napoleon's march in Berlin was actually welcomed by many. It's not like that everybody was unhappy with that fact. Um, and um, the common Prussians had little sympathy for the awkward personality of Friedrich Wilhelm. Um, also, this the defeat in Jena Auerstadt was a symbol how was symbol of the uh, Prussian monarchy. The Prussian monarchy's bankruptcy, you know, this impotency of, of the monarchy. Now, the queen was another thing. People could associate with her. People could feel a much more pity with her. She was a mother fleeing uh, from foreign troops with her children. She was saving her children. Um, and then came the legendary moment in Tilsit in uh, the summer of 1807. Um, when uh, Louise was called and asked to charm Napoleon to give Prussia more favorable conditions. She was also heavily pregnant at that moment, um, also sick. So she kind of overcame all these uncomfortable conditions and went and begged um, uh, Napoleon for better uh, conditions for Prussia. Did not achieve much, but like her sacrifice kind of uh, was enough for many people. And then, um, she became the, the biggest supporter or advocate of the reformers in Prussia, you know, because Prussia had to reform if, um, if the country was able to research, to research again. So she was, the, um, she was the one supporting all the reformers. She's the one who called back um, uh, and supported the reappointment of Baron von Stein. Um, and that's why the reform party was called the Queen's Party. Her husband understood that all these reforms were needed, but um, he kind of never felt that comfortable with, this, with these changes. And Napoleon famously called Louise um, the only real man in Prussia. 
Uh, so that's kind of get also from Napoleon a lot of admiration. Um, in 1810, uh, Louise, just 34 years old, died uh, while staying at her father's estate in Hohen, Zierlitz. And it was kind of wildly presumed that the time on a run and living in uh, difficult conditions in East, Eastern Prussia had shortened her life. So Louise became a symbol of anti-French resistance. Um, the, the King Friedrich Wilhelm and the reformers understood the power of her legend and used it effectively in 1813 uh, when they needed to mobilize the nation for war against Napoleon. Uh, the Iron Cross, this is that new medal that Friedrich Wilhelm um, created, where every soldier, no matter rank, no matter title, no matter class, could receive um, that Iron Cross was backdated as to appear that it was created on Queen Louise's birthday, which was March 10th, 18, uh, so it, it was March 10th. So the Iron Cross was actually created on March 17th, but was backdated to March 10th, um, 1813 to appear on her birthday. And the very first medal was actually posthumously awarded by, uh, by the king to, to the queen. Uh, to revenge the queen, uh, queen and make sure that Prussia was restored to its former glory became a powerful unifying symbol. Um, we have Lucia, the Prussian commander, allegedly uttered the words when looking at the occupied Paris in 1814, Louise, Louise, you are avenged. Again, asking the people to sacrifice for the king and the Hohenzollern dynasty, tough sell. They were not that popular. But associating the mobilization with the queen, with her suffering and sacrifice, was a clear and powerful message. So we see how her memory was weaponized. Also in 1814, the next year, the king created Louisan order, Orden or Order of Louise, which was given to women um, who um, fundraised, supported wounded, um, supported the overall Prussian war effort. So this is when we have also the, the, the first generation of Prussian and German um, feminists. Many of them are actually like, they um, became famous as, supporting the war efforts and also being awarded the Louisan Order. And to come to, to the end, I find Louise, uh, Queen Louise such a fascinating um, personality. Like I said, she wasn't very well-educated. She was just smart, had great instincts um, to find, the, um, to, to find the, the right measures. Um, and definitely she, her memory was weaponized after her death for the mobilization of the nation. But um, you, can, you can make great propaganda when you have great material. And she definitely um, provided um, the Prussian state with, with great material to say it plainly. Uh, simply because she was popular, because she knew how to connect with the people and also to, um, to insist on reforms. Many of the reforms would have never happened without her support. So that's my case.
what a woman just incredible see i knew kind of elements of her story but i've never had a had somebody kind of explain it to me in in such articulate terms thank you Vanya. um she's impressively forward thinking isn't she in in a number of ways particularly that kind of awareness of the need for reform and then helping to sort of try and make that happen i was very struck i was going to ask you about in fact i was going to say you know it's a shame that she died when she did because imagine what kind of an impact she would have had when it came to things like the congress of vienna and you know forging the the sixth and the seventh coalitions um but then you kind of said you know weaponizing her memory and it made me kind of wonder to what extent is the fact that she did die something that just galvanizes the prussian nation far more than had she lived i don't know if you've got any thoughts on that um yes so i you know um you you introduced me you know expert or whatever, like I, I read the letters on Karen Marie from Clausewitz and uh, I worked with those letters. So I have seen it. Um, she was, uh, while she was alive, she was a little bit, um, she, she was a complex figure. So even the reformers and Clausewitz was from the reform wing. Um, they were not always, um, they never, sometimes they felt like she was not supporting them enough, you know, there, there was a, um, she was controversial, you know, like the, she was always on the king's side. She might have not agreed with many of the, of his decisions, but she was always on the king's side and that kind of rubbed the reformers uh, sometimes wrong because they felt that she should have supported them much more, um, much more forcefully, but of course, by being always on the king's side, this is why the king followed, followed her lead, you know, because he knew that whatever, she always gonna be on his side. Um, and in, in that, in these terms, she was controversial figure uh, while she was alive, uh, always for, also for the, uh, for the reformers. Definitely uh, the re reactionary uh, wing really did not like her that much. That was not the woman's place and so on. But also the reformers um, did not like her that much. To be, we should be honest about it because Clausewitz ha has lines that are not very flattering. Same thing, Marie also had lines that are not very flattering about the queen. Uh, but after uh, Louise, after her death, after that untimely death, kind of many people just forget that part of the story. Suddenly she becomes like this embodiment of, of Prussia. And definitely um, the, the way, the whole procession, her body, uh, the king makes a whole procession, you know, it stops at so many places, um, uh, her body, and there is like people coming and mourning and so on. So after that, 18, the summer of 18, then she becomes the embodiment of Prussia. It just makes it much clearer to the people if, if you're gonna fight for what you're fighting for, which the, if it was just the king, people probably would never felt that comfortable uh, for Friedrich Wilhelm. So yeah, that's, that's the, um, the very impactful uh, part of her legacy. And also I should say the king, the king Friedrich Wilhelm had many, many, um, weaknesses but he also understood that she was his biggest weapon you know he also because he really loved her and he really admired the way um she could connect with people and he's the one who kind of 
really weaponized her memory. And that's one of the smartest things that he did, weaponizing that memory. So that leads me on to the other question that I wanted to ask, which is, it's fairly clear that, you know, she's, she's more popular than Frederick Willem. Um, is that a problem? Because, you know, he's, he's being upstaged by his wife. And in some respects, okay, great. You know, here's something, you know, here's, to think of it in very crude terms, here's an asset that he can make the most of in terms of trying to bolster the popularity for the monarchy at large. But at the same time, he's meant to be the guy at the top and it's meant to be all about him. So does it create tensions in their relationship or is it just that, you know, he loves her too much and he can see the benefit that she brings? Um, actually, no, this is, he really, um, really admires her. He really loves her. He also doesn't like to be that much center of attention. This is the, this tension. He, um, he knows that's part of the job and so on, but he doesn't, never felt comfortable with that. He always felt comfortable being surrounded by, um, by his um, military, by his adjutants and not even the reformers, you know, like Scharnhorst and so on, Clausewitz and so on. He liked just his old adjutants, you know, like that, that really like warm surrounding, he liked that. Um, but uh, there was a jealousy in the marriage, but it was going in an, an, a different direction that people expect. Um, the jealousy was that all these, um, all these reformers, all these um, also saloonier um, women, you know, saloons, Berlin salons, that's the, the classical era of Berlin salons, and the queen was kind of a patron of many of these um, gatherings, and um, he was feeling, the king was feeling that many of these people were abusing her time, the time that she should have given to him, you know, so he, um, Madame von, von Berg um, uh, was one of her closest friends and uh, the uh, big, you know, literary um, um, figure in Berlin um, and uh, the king famously had several not so nice words like coming back um, to the palace and finding the Madame von Berg there. And he was like, can I have my wife for once for, uh, for, for me, you know? So he um, certainly felt not jealous about her popularity. He saw it as a, um, as a something that he can use, rightfully so. He was just much more upset that um, uh, he was in competition with all these other, other people for her attention. Let me open it up to the floor. Thank you for that. Um, Sam, any questions on, on this one? No, no questions. Um, so I, I think it's a, an excellent choice. Uh, I, I didn't know a huge amount bef uh, before you started talking about her, but I did know she was quite important for Prussian national identity. Uh, so yeah, good choice. Thank and, you. And Christine, um, in, the, in the interlude of all of this, we have seen that you have a very impressive picture of uh, our Atti on your wall, it's a very on brand there. Um, which one is that in particular? Sorry, this, this uh, we, should, we should probably cut this out because it's meant to be an episode all about women, but it is a very nice uh, painting of the jig. But did you see my walking stick? I didn't, no. I got it at auction this week and it has an ivory carved head of uh, the Duke of Wellington as the handle. So next time I'm over, it's in, it's 
at an auction house in Horsham, West Sussex. So that's one of my, uh, my next pit stops on my next trip over. That's, so that's the, the Wellington Museum thing. continues to grow. Yes, uh, this, this, as far as I'm concerned, is a good thing. Um, others may disagree with me and start calling me cult Wellington, but that's a conversation for another day. Any thoughts on Vanya's pitch on Louise? Because what a pitch. It was a fabulous pitch. Unfortunately, I don't know anything about Louise, so I, I can't offer anything, not even a question. No worries. I, I think apologize. You have... No, no, not at all. I think it's probably an indication that you've swept to the floor and just kind of made us realise, okay, we, we have yet another contender here. So thank you for that, Vanya. We will move on now to Christine. Who are you going for? I'm going for Princess Charlotte, who was the daughter of George IV and um, Queen Caroline. And she's another one who died early, uh, way before her time. And she's, you know, a tragic romantic figure who in herself didn't do anything remarkable. Um, but she was the linchpin upon which so much of history turned. Um, you know, she was first engaged in 1814 during the peace celebrations. At that time, her father had contracted her hand in marriage to uh, the Prince of Orange. And she wasn't so happy with that because, you know, she felt nothing for him. It was, it was done without her consent. Um, now, her mother, Caroline, we, you know, that we had the, the Bill of Pains and Penalties. Uh, George IV wanted to leave her out of the liturgy at his coronation. And they were, you know, her parents were at odds constantly throughout her entire life. But her mother was very good at, at PR. And she was very good at swaying certain newspapers. So that when she was, when Charlotte was engaged to the Prince of Orange, her mother kind of got behind her argument against. And the newspapers started printing a lot of uh, speculation as to, well, she's our princess, she's the heir apparent. And if she marries Prince William uh, uh, of Orange, you know, he's got his own things to do in Orange and he's gonna take her there to live. So the public started to say, well, wait a minute, we don't like that so much. So, you know, that, that public opinion kind of swayed her father in that mm, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. And now we're in 1814 and we have the czar and we have the king of Prussia and we have all the heads of the foreign states coming to London for the peace celebrations. And it's at that time that Prince Leopold appears on the scene. And Leopold was a Lieutenant General in the Tsar's army at the time. So he accompanied the Tsar to London, he was in his suite. And it was during that time that Charlotte and Leopold actually met. And what happened was when her father, the Prince Regent got word that, you know, this this side affair was going on. He wasn't so happy and he tried to step in and keep them apart. Well, it was the Duke of Kent, um, George IV's brother, 
who kind of took the pair under his wing and passed secret notes between them. You know, this whole clandestine uh, affair, if you will, long distance affair. But um, the Duke of Kent was the one who facilitated their being able to correspond, which is interesting because of course, his sister, Leopold's sister, will go on to become the Duchess of Kent. So they eventually they get married. Leopold and Charlotte do get married. True love wins. Um, and now Leopold's sister, she starts to write, whose name is Victoria also, she starts to write to her new sister-in-law, Princess Charlotte. This goes on for about a year, two years, three years, and you know they get to be very good friends. And then we have the race where it looks like Princess Charlotte is going to be the only heir. We have to, you know, get some spares going just in case. So then we have the the royal dukes making sort sort of a preliminary run to the altar. And it's at that time that Charlotte and Leopold proposed to the Duke of Kent, what about Princess Victoria? And of course, later on, they will go on to get married and have Queen Victoria. And she will, upon Charlotte's death, you know, very early, a tragic death and childbirth, um, she will go on, Victoria will go on, of course, to be Queen of England. And so the whole future of the monarchy for about a century after Charlotte's death, it was pivotal upon the fact that she married Leopold and that she died early. So, and I, I just love whenever I go to Windsor, you know, there's a beautiful memorial to her in um, St. George's Chapel at Windsor to Charlotte. And it's this huge marble statue of, you know, her, her and her baby ascending to heaven with the angels. It's so moving. It, it really is. But, you know, it, it, it also speaks to, and I'm using the word incorrectly, but I always use it this way. British, that, that era of British history is so incestuous. In, in the way that, you know, every, Leo, she married Leopold, Leopold's sister is Victoria's mother, um, Leopold and Stockmar, Stockmar comes and uh, Prince Albert, you know, later on that whole thing, and he's with Stockmar and Leopold, and, and the Duke of Wellington is there from, you know, <laughs> 1814, of course, all the way up to 1852, and all these players and all these scenarios are you know, just playing out over and over again. And it's, to, to me, it's fascinating the way everything is all interrelated. And it's all hinged on this, on this one poor girl who died very early. And then we had, uh, you know, I've spoken about it before, William IV, uh, who has that whole brouhaha with the Duchess of Kent when it when it becomes apparent that Victoria is going to be, you know, the, the next monarch of Great Britain. And 
the Duchess of Kent starts taking her on that, you know, PR tour across the, the length and breadth of Great Britain. And William says, well, you know, I'm still alive. So I don't know why you're taking her on a royal tour. And then at his birthday, at William's birthday, he's, it's like the last straw. And he finds out that the, the Duchess of Kent has appropriated more rooms at Kensington Palace than he had given her. She asked for more, he said no. And she went behind his back, you know, took them, started redecorating them. So at his birthday dinner, it was the last straw for him. And he stands up when he's supposed to be, you know, acknowledging all the uh, honors that people are giving him on his birthday. And he just, you know, spouts all this poison about the Duchess of Kent to the point where poor Victoria burst into tears and Wellington is left to you know, to appease everybody, to calm everybody down. But it, it's funny that all the same people are now in a different play. They're, they're still on the scene. They're still from scene one. It's just all these different acts that the same players have to play all the way through history, through that century. And it, to me, it's fascinating how it, it just keeps interplaying all these lives. And, and it's all hinged, as I say, on the fact that Charlotte died young and that Charlotte married Leopold. And she's, from the sounds of it, she's a woman who knows her own mind. You know, she's told, mm, no, we're not going to let the Leopold thing happen. And then she goes, mm, I've got ways of making this happen. And, and she, she continues that, okay, she needs help to, to get the letters sent, but she manages to, to do things her own way. So, well, she, you know, she's very much like her niece, Queen Victoria, you know, in that they had very prescribed childhoods. You know, Victoria had the Kensington system. There's no name for the system that poor Charlotte had, but, you know, she was under her father's thumb for most of the time because only because he didn't want her associating with her mother, you know, just to be spiteful pretty much. So neither one had a really great childhood. Neither one had a lot of freedom in their choice of, either mates or just friends or ladies in waiting. So, you know, it's, it's another parallel that, again, I find interesting. Do we have much evidence of her thoughts on this situation? Does she leave behind letters or there, memoirs there are or anything letters. like that? There, there are letters and there's, um, you know, she, Meg Mercer Elphinstone was a very good friend of hers. And she has letters that she's left. But what I find interesting is that when she was le left and allowed to make her own choice and she chose Leopold, it truly was a love match. You know, they, they uh, honeymooned at Oatlands with the Duke and Duchess of York. And then they lived at Claremont for quite a while, you know, until her death. And then he continued to live there. You know, and and he got fifty thousand fifty thousand pounds a year as an annuity after her death, and that didn't sit right with George the Fourth. You know, he he wanted him out of the country, pretty much 
because he was just too much of a, a reminder. But, you know, then he leaves the country, he does leave the country, but then he comes back and he's even more influential in what happens in British events afterwards as advisor to Albert, as King of the Belgians, and as, you know, my dearest uncle to Queen Victoria. Do we have any inkling of what she might have done with her life had she lived longer? Are we just kind of delving too much into counterfactuals? Is there anything from her character that we can kind of extrapolate and work out what she might have sought to to do and be as a person going forward you know there isn't but it's very interesting to contemplate what kind of queen she would have made and likewise like victoria with albert you know that leopold would have been a strong force there you know he would have been the, the prince albert he would have been the prince philip he would have been the consort that really was her second half had she lived, I believe. Because we can see what he did afterwards with his life, you know, and, and his influence. And it, you know, it should be said that Leopold, like Wellington, was in a way selfless in that he never, it, you know, he never gave advice that would advance him personally or his political interests. He really did try to do what he thought would be best for his niece, Victoria, and Albert, and England. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, thank you for that, Christine. Let me throw it open to the others in the room. Vanya, have you got any any questions for this? I was, uh, yeah, I, I heard about Charlotte, but I never knew that much about her. And um, one thing that kind of, especially with the failed marriage with the orange, you know, the- um, uh, Prince of Orange. The Prince of Orange. How much was those negotiations for the marriage connected with the um, with the Congress of Vienna, you know, with that? Because um, that's kind of popped to my mind, you know, like, oh, my God, that could have been actually connected. Or, well, you or know, am I reading too much into it? Was well, there more diplomatic? You're, you're reading exactly what what should be read into it, because they were it was always a political strategy. Every marriage was. So, you know, to, to that extent, I don't think it was 
anything to do with the Napoleonic Wars per se, but because the, you know, the, the House of Orange was a strong ally at the time and it would be really convenient for the two to, to strengthen their ties with the marriage. But you know, again, every marriage that the British royal family made had some kind of po political or strategic subtext to it. And uh, that was, um, you know, the House of Orange was kind of built up, at, you know, that's where they got the extra territory during the um, Vienna Congress. So it was definitely the idea that that house should be uh, kind of built up almost like another Prussia, smaller Prussia, you know. Yes. Um, and of course makes sense, you know, all these marriage negotiations. I don't know how much that would have benefited Great Britain. I think it's at the end was the better, Leopold was the better yes. choice um, because, you know, smaller principality, not so important, you know, especially for British um, uh, independence and arise that probably, that was the better choice. But it's kind of fascinating how the political and personal intertwine. It is. And as I said, it's always the same, you know, it's that same handful of players that that keep reappearing on the stage in different roles. It's amazing to me. You know, oh, if you only sorry. look at one layer of history, mm -hmm. you see a much different picture, which is why I always say if you're gonna if you're gonna research a subject, research everything ancillary to it as well, not just that subject, because you'll see you'll see different things from different points of view if you take the wider picture and then your eyes are open, you're like, Oh, I didn't realize that. That never occurred to me before. Mm. So, you know, all, all the different intrigues and the different layers. To me, it's, you know, people say, how can you, how can you just research the Duke of Wellington for 30 years? Don't you get bored? No, because I keep coming at it from, from different angles. And I'm always learning something new. I truly am. Okay. Well, another emphatic pitch. Thank you for that, Christine. You are welcome. And last but by no means least, Beatrice, over to you. Yes, thank you, Zach. Um, I'm really very happy to present to you the Princess Dorothea Lieven. She is very well known to a lot of people working on this day and age. Katharina Alexandra Dorothea von Benkendorf. She was born for a Baltic German noblewoman, uh, the wife of Prince Christoph Heinrich von Lieven. And the reason that she became so famous was that she was an influential figure, first in Berlin in 1810, and then she came over as the wife of the Russian ambassador in 1810. And the interesting thing was that this was the day and age where personal feelings, private interests, the role of women behind the schemes was truly very important in political history. She was involved in the settlement of the Greek question, the Greek revolution in the 20s, the Spanish, the Portuguese question, the Belgian question. And she was a kind of a go-between, between, between the Tsar, Tsar Alexander, and all the British prime ministers. And well, she was at least as powerful as her husband. And this prompted the Tsar, Tsar Alexander I, to comment upon the princess in saying, it is a pity 
the Countess Lieven wears skirts. He wrote that to his foreign minister. She would have made an excellent diplomat. But in fact, I mean, she was an excellent diplomat, although she wore very, very pretty skirts. So that's, I think, the thing that you could say about her, about her personality, perhaps. What's also very interesting is that there are so many contrasting stories that are being told about her. Some people say, and she's also personified in, in different novels, that she was very haughty, that she was a snob, that she was arrogant. Other people say that she was very witty, very charming and intellectually very gifted. Um, some people claim that she was very modern and uh, she went into a quarrel with the Duke of Wellington himself because he thought him too outdated. But on the other hand, and that's the tendency that I myself like to align with, she was really very much a defender of the ancient regime. Um, feel principles. She was very much in favor of monarchical principles. The reason that she fell out a bit with the Duke of Wellington was more over Russian interests, vis-a-vis -vis Britain's, Britain's interests. She was a true defender of the Russian interests and she felt that Britain was not treated Russia well. Then that she was so much of a liberal. Sometimes we tend to see women in society as being more progressive and emancipated. Well, she was emancipated, but she was also very much an advocate of the old noble principles so in, in in short it was really very interesting and about if you if you look her up and on google you see different paintings of her it's a very beautiful painting on a wikipedia site for example but it's a very i think a more true painting by thomas lawrence himself you can see why some people called her a swan she was very swan-like a very elongated neckline and very elegant features other people called her a giraffe and thought her very haughty so you can see both in Thomas Lawrence's picture. That's that's what I like about about his pictures. Also, what I was so very fascinated fascinating about her. Well, the Princess Leven is also very interesting because people tend to say, well, women in international relations, they didn't have much to say back then, so why write uh, books about them? But I think it's high time now, and uh, uh, scholars like uh, Patricia Owens and Glenda Slugat have paved the way in showing how important people like Germaine de Stael were, uh, but also Dorothea Leven, she fits into that schedule. Hortense de Beauharnais, we, we, we made a podcast on her before, but Dorothea Lieven is also a very important person in this matter because this is still the age where social relations mattered, where salons mattered. And in fact, she was the kind of the patroness of one of the most exclusive clubs in Regency Britain, the Almax. She introduced the waltz there in 1814. It was considered a very frivolous dance, but she danced it nonetheless with the Tsar himself which made every people uh, clamor and clatter and, and uh, um, chatter away about it. But behind the scenes, she was, as I said, already said, she was very influential. And if you look into her letters, the, there's the, her printed diary, there's printed volumes of her letters to her brothers, Alexander and Constant uh, von Benkendorf, the Russian generals who liberated the Netherlands uh, for that matter, but also to Metternich. And it's also sad and well, people accept that as, as a proven situation, that she was the lover of Metternich, and she was truly in love with him, and completely felt scorned and discarded uh, when he did her away and, uh, for another younger woman. But through Metternich, she also knew all the ins and outs uh, about high society, and also about politics, and 
what I also really like about her letters, so a lot of them, a trove of them also in the British Library, is that they're very personal and they give you very good um, grip of the persons, uh, the, the high placed persons of the time. For example, um, she writes about Wellington. She sat next to Wellington at a party um, in the 1820s and she said, well, Wellington came to me, he spoke to me about the matter, saying that he wanted to settle it. By the way, he is truly always eager to settle everything. So it's quite a nice take on Wellington wanting to meddle with everything and wanting to settle everything. Um, and uh, as usually, Wellington uh, told me that this and that was rubbish. And he said that, uh, um, oh, this and, oh, it's about it's about the possible, it's, it's earlier, it's about the possible uh, marriage of the um, Princess Charlotte to the Prince of Orange. And they said, this fuss about the marriage is rubbish. And he said, uh, no one can understand it. And well, so she, she just gives away how Wellington trashed to her about all these, uh, well, these, these highly personal, but also these highly political intrigues. Um, also very interesting. And I want to underscore this point also because it confirms my notion that she was far more a conservative really truly wet to the idea of the holy alliance than that she was a liberal although she behaved very progressively a liberal sometimes in her dances in her look um, and it's about the belgian question as you know in 1829 1830 was disturbances in belgium already in the southern parts of the netherlands it was united with the netherlands in 1814 and then when the french revolution broke out it spilled over into belgium we should do a podcast on uh, the Dutch-Belgian separation at some point, but for now, she says it's more than regrettable, the uprising in Belgium. It is without cause or excuse and in truth without aim. So the, the liberals, the revolutionaries, the radicals in Belgium, they don't have anything uh, to motivate a claim. And this makes me hope that it will lead to no serious consequences. Here, this business has roused very strong feelings. Everybody, without exception, is annoyed with these foolish Belgians. I really like that. I could almost agree. <laughs> I, I, I truly, I, I also don't know. I do, of course, I totally do understand the Belgians. I'm, I'm, I'm not a conservative, but it's really very, uh, very fascinating how she writes about it, yet it's alarmed the possible consequences. And this also brought her together with Wellington again on that same conservative par. And both thought that this revolution may, their quotes, set Europe ablaze again. So here she is, on the one hand, pretending to be this modern lady of society, but on the other hand, very much defending the old Russian Holy Alliance ideals. And yeah, as I said, that, that really makes her a fascinating figure. She ends her days in Paris, so not in Russia. Uh, there's this dispute between Palmerston and the Tsar, and the ambassador is ordered home back to St. Petersburg. She goes there with her husband, the Count Levin, uh, but she loses her two little sons, and uh, she gets a very, very sad story. All these, all these stories about Hortense and, and Dorothea Levin, they're all very sad and tragic. She falls out with her husband, she leaves him, and she moves to Paris. And then in her late age, she has a true love uh, come true with a French um, historian and, and Premier Guizot. And they live together until she dies at a high age of 1857. So it's, it's tragedy, but also a love story in the end. 
So isn't that one of those true, truly beautiful historical vignettes captivating this whole era? What a woman. Um, wow. There's so much to unpick there. Thank you for that, Beatrice. Um, I'm quite relieved that you managed to stave off an international incident by suggesting that everybody in Belgium just needs to get over themselves and uh, reunite with the Netherlands. Much love to my Belgian listeners. Um, I, I will passionately advocate your right to uh, act as an Just quoting country. the Countess Lieven. Just quoting the Princess Lieven. <laughs> I mean, we almost had a, a moment there where you sort of swayed towards Bonapartism there, Beatrice, with the suggestion that, you know, all this idea of, of peoples determining their own rights and acting independently, this can't be allowed um, unless controlled by Napoleon vis-a-vis... Um, or Wellington. The, or Wellington. Well, yeah. Or the Tsar. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Or Wellington. Um, yes, I loved that, that anecdote about Wellington. You can almost hear it, can't you? The sort of, oh, this sort of thing really can't be tolerated. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely right that the British go and settle things the way to make everybody see sense. Um, yeah. No idea if Wellington talked like that, but in my head, that's what he really sounds like. That's at least um, how she conveys it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You just kind of get this, and it fits, doesn't it? Everything that you, you can tell the authenticity from everything else that we know about the guy. Um, but it just adds that element of realism to, you know, the the, the nature of the man that we're, we're talking about. Um, I was very struck by not only the quote, you know, that it's a pity <laughs> she doesn't wear skirts. She does wear um, skirts. It's a pity sorry, that she sorry, does wear skirts. Yeah, yeah, pity, yeah. Correct. Yes. <laughs> important. Uh, correct, yeah. Thank you. Um, but also this kind of dichotomy between people talking about you know, she's haughty, she's a snob, she's arrogant versus, you know, charming and witty. And I guess it is possible to be both on occasion. Um, but I'm, I, I rarely see that happening with people. Usually if somebody is able to turn on the charm, they choose to turn on the charm and the wit. Um, so why do you think there is this disparity in accounts? Is it because of certain types of people who are writing them? And so you see, you know, sort of conservatives writing about her in one way and, and more liberally minded people writing about her in another? Yes, that may be the case. Um, well, her letters give, and, and there's also there's different people writing about her in different stages also of this era, the 1810s till the 1840s. It, the, a lot of things happened. And uh, when she entered the scene in London in 1812, um, she came straight out of Berlin. Uh, she was educated in a Prussian fashion, quite rigid, and I can imagine quite haughty, and uh, well, still not so fashionable, perhaps. And when she then found her way into London society, she let herself more loose, and uh, uh, loose in the sense that she started to enjoy herself more and, and really started to entertain her own uh, salon. And um, she was further from home, further away from St. Petersburg, further away from, she was a lady in waiting before, so she was now more free to cultivate the friendships that she, that she wanted. So I also think there's kind of a development. I mean, I also hope to think, <laughs> flatter myself to think that we develop ourselves as well. I mean, you're not the same one that you were in your early 20s than you are in your early 30s or 40s. So perhaps that happened to her as well. And what was very interesting is she had this very deep core always, um, which was highly religious. 
and very patriotic. She, she truly was enamored with Russian court, with the Russian dynasty, with the Tsars and the Tsar family. And in the end, she sort of molded herself, folded herself around those interests. And uh, when those interests required charm, and elegance uh, to have all these men on her side, to have George Canning, to have Peel, to have uh, Palmerston, Canning, and Metternich all play to her tunes. I mean, then it helped to to well sort of shape yourself in 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 the form of, of their ideal figure. And I can't help thinking that she was very manipulative, because if you read her letters, she's so very clever and. There's one um, argument that testifies to that. That's in 1825, it was a really important moment in the development of the Greek question, where uh, on, on, at first you had the Holy Alliance, which was a whole, Prussia, Russia, and Austria, saying, we do not want any revolution. So the, the Greek, the, those revolutionaries, they just let them be. And it's, it's right that the Ottoman Empire still has the Greek under his thumb and we won't intervene. But then 1823, 24 things started to change. And well, I've just been reading this marvelous new book by Mark Mezauer, The Greek Revolution. And he shows that in 2023, 24 things started to change. And also from, from the United Kingdom, uh, people uh, send more sympathies to Phil Hellens, uh, Byron, but also more the liberal, the conservative advocates of, of, of the Greek for the, who stand up for the Greek sufferings. They also come to the fore. And then Tsar Alexander makes his U-turn. So he breaks of this holy alliance with Metternich to stand up in favor for the Greek. And then well, he dies in 1825, Nicholas I takes over. But that's a very important moment in Russian foreign policy, also in great power foreign policy. And at this moment, it's the Russian Tsar that asks not his ambassador, not Count Christoph von Lieven, but the wife, Dorothea von Lieven. Um, she is invited to convene with uh, the Russian foreign minister and the Tsar confides a great secret to her. It's called the great secret. She's been in visiting Russia, so she has gone, gone home to uh, receive this great secret. And the message is as minister to minister. So she is given the task to convey the message from minister to minister uh, to the British government to establish in the East an order of things and to intervene together. So it's the overture by the Tsar to do something with Britain together for the Greeks against the Turks without the Austrians and Metternich. So this is really kind of a diplomatic revolution. And the Princess Lieven is the one who makes that gesture, which testifies truly to the confidence that the Tsar had in her and also to her cleverness because she was the one who had to carry this out. How, how do you approach the, the British government with such a major breach in, in, in the old tendencies? That's quite staggering. Um, my, my other main question is, do we have any sense of her ideology? You know, what it was that, I mean, you talk about how, you know, there were certain things that motivated her and she was able to sort of mold herself around them. Do we have a clear indication of what causes she particularly wanted to push as an individual, as opposed to, you're thinking about loyalty to country and so on. That's that's a very modern, a very postmodern question to ask, Zach. And I think if she would pose that question in that form to the Princess Lieven, 
she would just stare at you and she wouldn't understand what you were trying to ask from her because she completely identified herself and she, she writes about this uh, frequently in a letter with a monarchical principle. She is the monarchical principle. For example, I, I told you that she, she went to Paris to live from her estranged husband and when he died, Guizot, formidable figure in French history, asked her to marry him. She didn't want to. Why not? Because she didn't want to lose the title princess, your serene highness. And she didn't want to lose that title to marry some kind of French, not so important nobleman. So the monarchical principle, the dynasty, her place in the dynasty, that great power framework, that was her identity. I think it was even more important to her than men in the end. Interesting, interesting. Um, <laughs> I like the way that you kind of said, yeah, that's a, that's a postmodern question now. And I wasn't even aware that I was doing a little bit of postmodernism, but so there you go, folks. You've got no, you, you, little... you were conducting identity politics and you were trying to dissect it. <laughs> no, but I, I, I truly don't think that she, she would have been able to comment upon her figure. Um, dissected from this monarchical principle, this dynastic identity. Uh, she fully embodied it. That's that's very, very curious. Um, I really like this one. Well, I've, I've liked all of them. I mean, this is becoming a, a banal comment from me on, on these ones that, you know, I really like this. In terms of her direct impacts, do we have any incidents beyond what you kind of talked about already where you know, things really sort of swung and, and hinged on her individual efforts and interventions. It's so difficult to respond to because um, she didn't have a formal position. So there's no formal treaty, no formal minutes, no formal entreaties or formal, although I know, um, missives uh, that, that have been formulated and signed off by her. We have her personal letters, her private letters, and... Uh, reports on her interventions. Um, I do think that what I just just narrated, this, this move where she was tasked by conveying the, the U-turn in Russian foreign politics to the British cabinet, that that was one of the most consequential uh, things that she did. Nestle Roder, the foreign minister, he, he says about her, a woman knows how to make people speak. And this is why the emperor considers you to have your opportunity. So they expected her to make people, to manipulate people in making play to their tunes, this new tune of going together for the Greeks. And well, this is really consequential, had the Greek independence at, as its consequence. So I do think, after all, that this is the most important move that she made. And a couple of years after that, she was, um, they were both uh, taken back to hold back to Russia. Um, I'm not sure what, what other things I, I should I should study this more in detail because it, it's it's very indirectly um, reported in, in, in the archives. So as, as I said, you have her, her letters and your foreign official papers and we should perhaps this is the work that needs to be done now that we really try to bend ourselves and make sense or happen behind the scenes. So it's the men, but behind these men were great women like the Princess of Leven and others who really manipulated them in doing so, were expected to do so. So perhaps that's the story that still needs to be told. 
Yeah, as we've kind of touched on over the course of, of this episode, there is this, and I want to come back to it, this is kind of this curious contradiction, isn't there, that, you know, women aren't expected to play an active role in the public sphere, um, that, you know, the idea of a woman being well-educated politically uh, and taking an active interest in affairs of state would have been seen as very subversive and, you know, therefore she, she's sort of but Dorothea has this sort of potential to be quite a threatening presence, uh, not only to kind of social stability, but also, you know, here's an, an active person who knows how to play men at their own game um, and, and take their stance and make them see things another way. Um, and yet, at the same time, these salons are popular and men are very happy to go and have these conversations, you know, and, and they know what's going to happen at these salons. So I'm not sure this, this kind of long-winded comment is really going anywhere, but do you have any thoughts on, on that and, and the contradictions and how that sort of square gets circled, if you will? I'm not sure whether I get it circled, um, but I do think, uh, well, there's the, this notion of the whisper behind the thrones. You, you, you could also project that on the women. They were the whispers behind the thrones. Not all of them, but, but many of them. And uh, Dorothy Levin really stands out in this respect. And uh, it was um, perhaps they were not expected to behave like men, but this is this very interesting transition period where they still could have great personal impact through those salons. The sociability was played out in those salons, those safe spaces, those secure spaces, where high-placed politicians could meet and knew that their, their, their entreaties were treated in secret or in confidence, or that people were, there was this kind of understanding how to behave, not overstep the limits. Affairs were also uh, accepted within these limits, uh, even if they, especially if they also supported political interests. But this was this transition period from this ancient regime, dynastic influence of princesses and princes, or the, the, the Versailles uh, um, uh, conspiracy, if, if you like, uh, liaison dangereux, the transition period to the more bourgeois um, uh, stage of politics, where the thing was only done by men and, and women were really put back into their houses and in the kitchens or whatever and the salons uh, sort of lost their importance and then only with, with women's suffragette and with emancipation late in the 19th century women could try to reclaim back their roles but it was still a period where if you were of noble blood you still could find your place on an equal footing with men as Wellington and Natalie. They took them very seriously, those women. I suppose there's also a point here that actually, despite what men might have liked to have believed, the idea of women being actively involved in politics and having their own agendas and working to achieve things for those agendas is actually nothing new uh, during this period. And it's something that's been going on for centuries. Um, and yes, men have been kicking against that. See what happened to uh, what should have been for, for Britain, Queen Matilda. Um, and right. you know, the... The, the horrors that you know she was she was trying to rule like a female king this this cannot be tolerated sort of thing um but then you look at her father and who her father was and go well of course she was you know look at the stock that she comes from um so perhaps there's an element of that in it as well yeah i really like this thank you beatrice welcome 
very happy to do this on behalf of the Princess Leven. So we're now going to go around the room and do what I like to call honourable mentions. This has become sort of a round, if you like, of, of these episodes. Um, I always plan this really badly in advance and don't tell my guests that we're going to do a round of honourable mentions and then spring it on them. Not intentionally, that's just sheer incompetence on my part. But we are going to just kind of, it is don't need to be long pitches, just sort of people that you'd want to mention in the mix. Not necessarily most significant um, people, or, or not most significant women of the period, but just people who you think, you know, their stories are, are worth just flagging. I'll just um, wave the flag on behalf of Marie Valevska for a moment. Um, oh, yeah. See, I'm sure I did some research on this. And as I've been, as we've been doing this episode, I've been trying to find what I, my notes for her and I can't, which is really bugging me and it's appalling prep. Um, and that's an appalling piece of podcasting right there, but that's by the by, we'll leave it in just to highlight my incompetence. Marie Vlevska, she, she's very famous for her role in persuading Napoleon to create um, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, fundamentally. Um, Lots of questions about to what extent was this already on Napoleon's mind? To what extent did Marie um, just kind of help encourage him along the way? And certainly when I first approached kind of looking into Marie and her story, um, my, my sense was that effectively she was almost a sort of mother of modern day Poland because of her role in, in bringing, um, bringing that, that issue to the fore of Napoleon's mind. And then the, the more work I did, the more it seemed to suggest that perhaps Napoleon was thinking of this anyway, and all she did was just sort of hurry the process along. I'm not an expert on Marie and her life, um, so I, I can't really comment on that. But what I would say is, here was a woman who was very unhappily married um, for much of her life, married to somebody far, far older than her, um, but who found a way to make her way in the world and to start to exert influence through a variety of means. Um, it's, it's famously said that she was Napoleon's mistress. And, you know, read what you want into that. But here was a woman who had a cause that she was pushing for a long time. And ultimately, she found a way to make that cause a successful one. And yes, sure, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw ends up being dismembered. Um, in, in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars. There's no getting away from that. But nonetheless, the fact that she was able to persuade Napoleon to create the Grand Duchy of Warsaw gave the Poles a kind of a sense of identity and a sense of belonging within a geographical entity in Europe, which they hadn't had for a heck of a long time. Um, and so, you know, just for the sake of the Polish listeners, if nothing else, um, and to encourage more people from Poland perhaps to tune in, um, I think she's worth mentioning as a clearly significant woman in this period um, and an impressive one for her ability to make um, the world work in ways that she wanted to. Because, look, here's a woman with actual demonstrable geopolitical significance in the fact that she was able to help carve out a nation. And that's deeply impressive uh, as much as anything else. So there's my honourable mention. Let's go around the room. Vanya, what about yours? I um, originally I was also when I was preparing for this podcast I was uh, thinking about, about Rachel uh, Levin van Hagen. Um, so um, 
Rachel von Warnhagen von Enze, you know, it's the, the whole thing. She, um, incredibly important personality in that era, but also after that. Um, Rachel, many just know her as just Rachel. Um, that's, she was a salonier in, in Berlin. That was the first real salon in Berlin. She created it. She's Jewish, um, daughter of a rich merchants. Um, and friend of Goethe, uh, of all these uh, famous uh, German writers. But during the Napoleonic era, um, she kind of plays very um, important role by, uh, she's the one who conceives the idea of creating hospitals, hospitals that the women uh, would be supporting, you know, the ladies in Berlin and the women can work in those hospitals. Um, to remind you, um, the hospitals, the military hospitals and things like this um, were mostly run by, by the state. It was run by the state in that era. Women generally were not allowed to come by if they were not nuns or, uh, you know, uh, wives of soldiers, lowly soldiers, or sometimes, you know, like prostitutes, that's kind of another, uh, I don't know how true it is, or it's more prejudice, but um, Rachel Van Hagen is the one who comes with the uh, with the idea that the ladies um, uh, of Berlin, um, especially in Berlin, they can be um, they can create hospitals, they can work there, make it um, safe space for women. It's a way the women to contribute. It's also a way for the women to play. Um, a uh, much more important role, um, their social role. And also she is Jewish. And that's one of the things that she creates through those hospitals is that women of all faiths, um, there is no, uh, of all faiths of all uh, social statuses can meet there, can work there. Um, so it was not anymore this um, social separation that we uh, had before. Kind of the, the idea is very successful and um, a little bit taken out of her hands because it's so successful. So it goes under royal patronage. So she's kind of pushed aside, unfortunately. But um, this is um, her impact is 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 really important in that um, in that sense. Um, her letters, like this, is where we know much more about her. Her letters um, published afterwards um, after her death. Um, I think some of them are published while she's still alive, but they are like much more on a literary scene, you know, with writers. Um, so they have that interest. And another woman that I only recently, I've, I have known her name, but I never like um, had much to do. And she did not play much of a role, but um, her memoirs are incredibly interesting. And that's uh, Sophie von Schwerin. I just recently, like maybe a year ago, I found the, um, uh, they're very hard to find her memoirs, Sophie von Schwerin, um, and it's what it means to live through that era, you know, especially occupied Berlin, because the Schwerin, her family is like one of the richest and most important families in Berlin, so they have all kinds of Napoleonic generals living in their house. So it's like this um, human history, what it means to be a woman living in, in that era. Um, not particularly uh, active or doing great things and so on, just basically watching over your family and trying to, because th there is a one hit after another hit the family takes. So she, in a way, uh, 
uh, takes over the mansion, you know, uh, over the property and um, yeah, in that era. So that's, I find it really interesting. But in some respects, it's those windows into a wider life and a wider society that in themselves are significant for a whole, yes, it's a very different interpretation of the term significant, but it's still nonetheless significant for the value that it leaves behind for us as researchers trying to understand this period. I really like both of those. How, it's amazing how, uh, like the diaries that you just found, Vanya, that, that they've survived, you know, these, and she was, it sounds like she was in a very pivotal place, the right place at the right time. Plus she wrote, took the time to write the memoirs and they survived. So it's well, so important. She, uh, full disclosure, Sufish von Schwerin, she's the wife of um, Wilhelm, Wilhelm von Schwerin. He's the most famous Prussian killed in the Battle of Waterloo. You know, Blücher sends the telegram, sends the message to the to the king saying, we won the battle, but Schwerin has fallen. So she's the wife of that Schwerin. Um, and um, she kind of, many of his letters, she uh, used those letters to put in the memoir. So we know his involvement in the Napoleonic period. Um, and after, after at some point she became a writer, she was actually um, um, best-selling author in her own right, but uh, mostly like some like romantic things and, uh, you know, things like this. Um, but about the life during the Napoleonic era, it's that that memoir, which she never finished and uh, her sister kind of put together and published after that. Christine, we'll, we'll stay with you. What about your honorable mention? Um, Pauline Borghese? I think. Um, I got she, some approving nods. She who sold her house in Paris to the British, and it's to this day is still the British embassy is housed there. Um, but lesser known, she made two trips to Elba to see her brother. And on the first trip, she bought a ship full with a P, a ship full of crates and valuables. Nobody knows exactly what was in them, but she brought them and she left Elba without them. And on the second trip, she arrived with cases full of jewels, many important diamonds, and she left without them. So read into that what you will. But the timing is you know, very coincidental in my mind. I think there's and a whole then, podcast on that right there. <laughs> you and I need to have a conversation. <laughs> and very, very shortly after her second visit, um, Napoleon made his return. Curious, curious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. We won't probe just because like I say, perhaps there's a, there's a whole podcast to be, to be done about that. Sam, what about your honourable mention? I think no one will be surprised by this one. I don't think you can have a discussion about significant women in this period without mentioning Josephine. Uh, she was obviously immensely useful to Napoleon right up until the day he got rid of her. Uh, her aunt and regime connections helped deal with returning emigres, but her revolutionary days helped deal with the more revolutionary parts of the politics. Uh, she commissioned art to, to 
like elaborate and celebrate his victories, which helped propaganda. Uh, and most importantly, she was an excellent hostess and softened the effect of Napoleon's abrasive personality, uh, with ending with his famous quote, I win battles, but Josephine wins art. That is well said, yes. Um, and folks will remember that Rachel Stark was talking about this whole kind of, when we were doing the episode on misunderstood individuals, actually this whole kind of conception around Josephine, not least the nymphomania, um, but you know the other ways in which she's kind of been pushed to one side there's a whole problem there and um, again I'm slightly shameful that we haven't had a, an episode on that I will try and work on that folks do not worry and Break it, her contributions to gardening okay in nice us no small feat at the time it, you've lost me Christine what Contribution to gardening? Well, uh, at Malmaison. It's, it's not political or historical importance, but to me, um, you know, she funded her, she had two or three gardeners. Well, I'm calling them gardeners, but they were more like botanists. And she sent them all over the world to get rare plant specimens. And so a lot of the roses, a lot of the tropical flowers that she had at Malmaison were the, you know, the basis for the, the gardens, the decorative landscape gardens that evolved from there. You know, it, she, a lot of the English landscape gardening, the specimens and the plants came from her garden. I did not know any of that. That's quite shameful on my part. Okay, wow, uh, yes. And then finally, for the last of our honorable mentions, Beatrice, all yours. Yes, well, I think Zach, by now you should have expected me to make the case for the Princess Wilhelmina of Prussia, uh, born Frederica Sophia Wilhelmina. She was the consort of William V of Orange, the last stadtholder, and thereby the mother of William VI, A.K. William I, the King of the United Netherlands. Um, she was before her son became King William I in 1814, 1813. And she was leader of the dynastic party in the Netherlands. She kept the monarchical principle, the stadtholder principle alive. She was also head of the counter-revolution in the Netherlands. She was the daughter of Prince Augustus William of Prussia. She was uh, the niece of Frederick the Great. She was, in fact, raised at his court and was quite appalled by it. She didn't like it at all. It was far too frivolous, far too liberal. And uh, when she was only 16 years old, she came to the Netherlands and married off to William of Orange. And when she had children herself, amongst them, the later King William I, she intended to not run a liberal, a very frivolous court, but do it very consciously, very piously, raise her children herself, uh, she gave him lessons themselves, uh, she gardened with her children, she even made a very beautiful little painting of, of the little children, and it's that painting that Wilhelmina drew from her, about the children, from her children, still now hangs in the, the Royal Archives in the Netherlands. If you go there, just ask for the little painting that she, it's very, very touching that she made uh, from her children. And, but the interesting thing is, she, she was a deeply involved mother, but she was also deeply involved in revolutionary conflict. And in the 1780s, when it started to broil and, and revolt started to happen in the Netherlands, she just called her brother 
the king of Prussia to come in, safety in 85, and uh, save her reign and save her husband. And um, uh, 1787, uh, she was stopped by the revolutionaries waiting for permission. And then uh, the brother, the king of Prussia, he heard about her plight and he received her letter and he sent in the troops. So she sort of staved off the revolution in 1787, but only a couple of years later, they had to succumb. And even the, her brother couldn't save her. They went off to Britain and there Wilhelmina with her husband, William V, but he sort of resigned and, and she did all the work. They kept the dynasty alive and she lobbied uh, in as much as she could. And then in 1813, when her son went back to the Netherlands, then she was the one pressing him and uh, also to, 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 to talk with Castoray. She didn't, but her son did. And that's kind of the, the place where this notion that the Dutch um, stadtholder republic could become a monarchy, which is very strange outcome of the French Revolution, that the republic of the Netherlands became a monarchy. And you could say that Wilhelmina was the kingmaker and the monarchical maker behind that. And uh, she settled in the Netherlands, later in Berlin, she received Tsar Alexander, she tried to other, do other things in matchmaking, but she was a great woman and she really was a kingmaker for the Dutch kingdom. Did she have a particular dislike for the concept of Belgian independence by any chance? Ah, that's a very good question. Um, I think she died early enough to not have, have having had to witness that disgrace. She died in 1820. Um, so, and the, the Belgian Revolution was not until 1829, 1830. So she missed that for her, luckily enough. Out of but interest, just just while we're on the, that topic about, you know, the the um, relations between Belgium and the Netherlands today. How do people view this? Is it a bit like a lot of 19th century in, in the UK where we've sort of forgotten it bar very obviously and pretty fundamental reasons, you know, the, the whole thing about around slavery. Um, is it one of those things where it's just kind of not focused upon or does it mean that much more because it is quite key and sort of a, as a foundational moment in both nations' histories? Well, no, not really. I mean, for the Belgians, 1830 is really important. Um, but um, the, for the Belgians, their period of having been incorporated in the Kingdom of the Netherlands had only lasted for 15 years. So it's the, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands only existed properly, formally since 1815. And in 1813, the Belgians uh, claimed their independence. So it has been, so this, this, these southern provinces of the Netherlands, they always have been part that, of the area that's been known as the Low Countries. Uh, but, I mean, it was in the Middle Ages, it, it was it had its own identity. Yeah, the Burgund, it was called the Burgundian, Burgundian Netherlands, and then the Habsburg Netherlands, or part of the Habsburg Empire, Spanish and Austrian Netherlands. So it wasn't truly Dutch, if you could call it that way. So there's not this sense that that something truly, um, in uh, yeah, something truly essential had been lost. I mean, there was this this notion of, of the greater kingdom of the Netherlands, but. Uh, in the 19th century, indeed, late 19th century, early 20th century, with 
kind of got somewhat tainted during a certain period in the 20th century. So um, uh, people don't tend to talk about it anymore. And there's always also been talk of, of uniting the southern part of Belgium with France, which is also a discussion that's ongoing. Uh, Belgium itself is, is truly divided uh, between the, 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 the Wallonians in the, um, on the one hand and the uh, Flamingians on the other hand, plus a, couple, a minority of German-speaking Belgians. So it's kind of riddled with, with front lines in itself. So no, there's no, not really a talk that there should be a reunification again. I haven't heard. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I always find it fascinating to see how other nations teach their, their own history. But anyway, I digress. Right. So that brings us to the end of another incredibly interesting episode. Thank you all for joining me. As I say, we will leave it to Twitter, um, and I will trust Twitter this time to come out with the correct answer, but we'll, we'll see. Um, perhaps my faith in the democratic process will be shaken. But Vanya, Beatrice, Christine and Sam, thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It was fun. Have a good one. Thank you. Always fun to be here. Folks, as ever, do me a favour, remember to like and subscribe, share the episode and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. As ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters whose generosity keep this show going and are responsible for the fact that we have finally managed to reach the 100,000th download milestone. It's incredible to think that you know we ever got there um, because at one stage I was sceptical that we'd hit you know 25,000 downloads, let alone four times that. I have no idea if the show will keep going long enough to hit the 200,000th download and, you know, be, you know, milestones beyond that, but who knows. Um, so a particular shout out and much love to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Marshall patrons, Marcus Cribb and Todd Campbell, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham, Stephen Gillen and Michael Guest and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons. Alexandra Leon, Alastair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brannan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cothlin, and Stephen Coulson. If you're interested in learning how you can become a patron and the benefits and the perks of each tier, check the links in the description. It'll take you through, the, through to the Patreon page and you'll find all the details you need. So what's to come on the Napoleon Assist? Well, haven't we been busy? Next month, as promised, you're going to get three episodes. The reason you didn't actually get three individual episodes this time was because one of those episodes was a four-hour odyssey and... That was probably quite enough for you, quite frankly. Um, but in total, you've had six hours of podcasting this month, so hopefully you don't feel shortchanged. But there will be three episodes coming out. Bob Burnham will be talking to me on the Portuguese army. Kit Chapman, the science historian, will be talking to me about scientific developments during the Napoleonic era and how this period was actually the birth of modern science. And I will be doing an episode on producing quality documentaries as I speak to Jesse Alexander from Real Time History about a show they have coming out, or a series of shows even, on the Russian 
1813 campaigns. I can also make an exclusive announcement. My uh, commander patrons, my martial patrons and my emperor level patrons all engaged in a vote for the next themed month and it turned into a dead heat. So I opened it up to my mentioned in dispatches patrons all via the Patreon site. It was very, very close, uh, and it ended up being between two, between Russia Month and Wargaming Month, and by a mere smidgen, uh, just 53% of the vote, Wargaming Month has triumphed. So March will see a sequence of episodes dedicated to Wargaming, its history, the different mediums through which it exists, uh, and also you know, offering you a little bit of advice if you're interested in looking at the Wargaming side of things, but also the historical importance of wargaming and the way in which it has helped to tell the story of the period. So lots of different angles to explore there, something really new and really interesting, uh, something that wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me, um, but just kind of came to me on a whim and seemed to go down an absolute storm with listeners. So lots to look forward to. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, stay kind. And as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.